Welcome to the Vacation Impossible podcast for Friday, January 31st. I am in the Gulf, just south of uh, Galveston, Texas, on board the Carnival Vista. And today I'm going to be talking about a bunch of different things. going to be covering uh, uh, how debarkation works. That's how you get off the ship. I'm going to be talking about uh, some issues about uh, Expedia and what booking with them, why it's not always the best idea. Uh, also going to be talking about some uh, changes to Uber in California, a bunch of other topics. So let's dive right in. So... Um, First off, just this trip so far has been pretty interesting. Uh, this is a seven-day sail out of Galveston. We are in a Havana Experience balcony at the aft of the ship, dead center. We've got a video up on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash vacationimpossible, where we give you a tour of the cabin. So if you want to see what a Havana balcony looks like at the aft of the Carnival Vista, check that out. But um, yeah, it's been a pretty crazy trip. Um the exciting thing I think that happened, uh, we went to three destinations. We went to Cozumel, Grand Cayman, and Ocho Rios. And whilst in Grand Cayman, there was an earthquake. There was an earthquake. It was centered in Jamaica, which is, I think, about 200 miles away from the Cayman Islands where I was. But I was in the Island Plaza Mall in Grand Cayman. I was sitting on a bench, ironically, trying to upload a YouTube video because uh, that's sort of a thing we do now. We try to film while we're traveling edit sort of on the road or on the on the ship as the case may be and then upload when we get into port so we can get stuff out nice and quickly so i was trying to upload a video and an earthquake struck and um that was my first ever earthquake so that's a new experience for me uh i was sitting on a bench in island plaza and i felt motion and because this is my 23rd cruise and so i've been on a lot of cruises Initially, my instinctual gut reaction was like, oh, we're hitting some rough waves because I'm used to being on the ship. Uh, and then I remembered I am not currently on the ship. I am on an island. This is not normal. Uh, and then the shaking intensified. Uh, still not much worse than I've experienced on uh, the Carnival Paradise one time. We were coming back into Tampa, and there were some really high winds. So it was about equivalent to that. Uh, but the fact that you're on land, that you're on something that you consider to be so stable, was suddenly moving like a ship would, uh, was terrifying. There's just no other word for it. Uh, a lot of people reacted very strongly and uh, not necessarily in the greatest way. Uh, I was on a bench with another fellow. I don't know who he was, some guy with a DSLR camera, and he got up and he ran. Uh, and so now I had sort of the bench to myself. So what I did is I crouched down next to the bench ready to get under the bench as sort of they teach you in elementary school, you know, ducking cover, things like that, uh, hoping that this bench, which was wood slats, would protect me from whatever might come from above because that's the real danger in an earthquake, at least in that scenario. I did speak to some other guests here on the Carnival Vista who were at the beach at the time, and they said crevices started opening up and then expanding and things just kept, like sand and stuff, just kept going in and going in. The earth opened up in front of them. Uh, and I've seen some videos online of it, and that is mind-blowing. So uh, I'm 
sort of hunkered down next to this bench, ready to like get under it if I can. Uh, and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking to myself, I'm not entirely certain I can fit under this bench. Uh, I'm not that large a guy, but um, the bench was pretty low and there was a bar in the middle underneath that was sort of reinforcing it. And I wasn't sure if I'd be able to get under it uh, successfully or safely. So I was trying to strategize, like, if I have to get under it, I need to cover my head and my back, my torso. Uh, If I can get in sort of sideways, that should do the job. I looked up to the ceiling and in the Island Plaza Mall, there are giant spinning fans. And so, again, I I was looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, that's the biggest danger. Uh, and so I, you know, I kept my hat on for what minimal protection the hat might offer in that situation. And uh, uh, I just got ready to get under. Uh, and so the shaking went on for a little bit. Uh, and it's hard to say how long because adrenaline really causes people to uh, not form the greatest memories. Uh, and your sense of time is either elongated or compressed. So it's difficult to say for how long it lasted. Reports that I've heard on the ship that it was anywhere from a 7.7 to a 9.5. But again, that would have been in Jamaica or a center, which 200 miles away. So there were, I found a couple of different reactions that people had. Most people just got up and ran. Uh, they ran out of the mall towards the street, which is not necessarily the safest thing to do in an earthquake. Uh, there was sort of another level of reaction where people were yelling and screaming. Um, And then there was like what I would call the third level of reaction, um, which was honestly a little disappointing. I mean, I don't want to judge people when they're having a stress reaction, but they were um, running back and forth, so not progressively going anywhere, screaming and just crying. Uh, and so I feel for them, but at the same time, I'm thinking you are expending so much energy for no productive purpose. Now I understand adrenaline is pumping through your body. It's a fear that you've not prepared for. I sympathize. My heart goes out to people. I'm sure it was a very stressful reaction, uh, and situation for everyone. Um, but my reaction was find shelter, observe my environment, wait for the shaking to stop. Uh, And so I would like to think that my reaction was probably preferable to the others. Uh, Running might have been the right thing, depending on what you're running from and running to. That really is situational. But um, not a lot of people stayed fully calm. And I'd like to think that I was calm. And I think part of what made my reaction not a total loss of control was, again, the, the, the schooling you get in elementary school and other places where they tell you what to do. Uh, and so you've been through enough earthquake drills. I do that at my day job as well. Once a year, there's a, in my province, British Columbia, there's something called Shakeout BC, which happens, I think, every October around the 10th. Uh, and so you practice. Uh, and so that served me well. But also, I think my 23 cruises actually served me well in the earthquake because like even right now there's a bit of motion to the ship so it's not so completely outside of my realm of experience to have the the floor that I'm on moving around a little bit from time to time and so uh, I think that cut down on the shock the surprise the panic the fear so ironically what I got out of this was I think going on cruises can help prepare you for earthquakes. That's crazy. I know it sounds nuts on its surface, Uh, but that's kind of how I felt. I felt better prepared because of earthquake drills and because of the cruises I had been on. Uh, Otherwise, I don't know what I would have made out of it. Uh, I think I probably would have been much more prone to panic, but it was a sensation 
that wasn't completely outside of my realm of experience, whether it's roller coasters, other amusement park rides, or being on uh, a ship. So that was interesting. Uh, once the shaking stabilized, I got up and I just ran to the port. Now, you're going to be listening to this podcast you know, several days, if not weeks after when this earthquake has happened. So if you know anything about it, you probably know that uh, the impact wasn't major, at least from everything I've heard and seen. So you might think, well, Ray, you're overreacting. But in that situation, you have no earthly idea what's going on. There is no flow of information. And so you don't know if this is the first of a series of earthquakes. Uh, you don't know if they're going to intensify. You don't know how bad it was being in the middle of it necessarily, not being an expert of any kind. You don't know, is a tsunami a risk? Is a, like I, I, I wasn't even thinking at the time that a crevice could open in front of me. It, apparently it happened in other parts of the island. So my thinking was, my rationale, I had basically two thoughts in my head. And the first one was, how do I survive this? How do I increase my odds of survival? First off, protect yourself from the initial shaking, but then what? With an uncertain future and geological instability known that you've just experienced, to me, the logical thing was to get back on the ship. The ship is largely unsinkable. Uh, the ship can sail away from danger. The ship has supplies. The ship has a burden of care, a duty of care to its passengers. The ship has food, has water, has power, has all these different essentials of life. Uh, and it's where my other possessions were. It's where people would know that I was. Um, you know, uh, there's, I think there's less issues of, um, of like travel jurisdiction and having, I had my passport on me because I always travel with my passport. And that's an interesting thing to think about for those cruisers who are very against having a passport, which is something I've never understood. But for those people, um, this is uh, admittedly an extreme example, but it is an example of why a passport's a good thing to have and have on you while in port. Because what if something did happen where returning to the ship wasn't an option? So... I'm very aware of my surroundings. I'm looking above for things like falling power lines, glass, debris. There's none. Everything seems pretty stable. Traffic has shifted <laughs> in its in its in its um, a traffic pattern change, if you will. The uh, traffic immediately outside the mall was sort of largely ground to a halt, um, kind of disorganized. Some people were moving, some weren't. Dangerous. But about a block closer to the pier, there was, a, there was a solid block where there were no cars. So I ran along the sidewalk, ran across the street in the gap where there were no cars anywhere near me, and then ran straight to the port. A lot of people had a similar thought. Get me out of here. Get me back to the ship. Get me back to the safety that I know better than this port that I... I mean, I've been to Grand Cayman probably six times, seven times now. Um, but obviously, I feel safer on the ship just because it's still more familiar. And again, they have a duty of care. So... Um, there were two massive lines and it was a bit of a cluster. And again, a lot of the panicking people were, um, were, were just metaphorically speaking, spinning their wheels. They, they, they weren't sure where to go. They were going back and forth. They were just expressing their emotional panic. And I can appreciate that, but that got in the way of the, uh, safe at the time I was thinking evacuation of the Island. Cause again, I have no idea what kind of danger we're in. Uh, so what I did is I went to the front of the line by going alongside it as best I could to find out which line was for our ship because there was more than one ship and more than one line. So the line that I first identified did turn out to be the Vista line. I got back in and then uh, I waited in line and, um, you know, I, I filmed a little bit with my GoPro um, for 
I don't know why, educational purposes, posterity, uh, could have been my last message. What do I know? I don't know what danger I'm in. Uh, and so a lot of people were uh, having sort of their stress reactions and vocalizing it and stuff, but it was actually fairly tame in the line, which was good. Um, but the line moved slowly because people didn't have their documentation ready. And so again, one of the things we try to do here at Vacation Impossible is have people prepared and understand like our video about uh, boarding the ship and, and tips on how to do that. I'm very gratified to see that a lot of people have watched that so that they go to the port prepared and then the line moves faster. And so in an evacuation scenario or even just a busy scenario like this one, knowing what you need and being ready is super helpful. And so they always say nowadays, it seems, whenever you're in port, have photo ID and your ship card. Not a lot of ports actually check that photo ID, but I had no earthly idea and I wasn't going to introduce a delay for either myself or the people behind me by not having it ready. So I had my sign and sail card in my passport, uh, basically bookmarking the picture page. I got up, I showed them both. I don't even know if they cared about the passport or not. It was just there on display, ready to go, and they waved me through. Uh, and then some people were milling around just after that first uh, security checkpoint. Um, maybe they were waiting for other people. It didn't seem that way. It seemed like they were just like, um, you know, uh, expressing their, their panic. So I went around them and I was on the first tender, although now they call them water shuttles. I was on the first water shuttle that left the island after the earthquake. Uh, and so they were doing a very good job, I have to say. Grand Cayman um, tender water shuttle operators were very professional. Um, and so they had the ramp set up for the second uh, water shuttle to leave the island. And so they were prioritizing um, uh, people with uh, physical disabilities for that vessel. And the other one was sort of the able-bodied individuals. And... Um, it was interesting because people in their panic weren't listening to instructions. And so a lot of able-bodied people were crowding the ramp for um, the, the special needs uh, guests. So I basically physically blocked people for a moment just so I could see there was this wheelchair that had been waiting. It was clearly frustrated. I blocked the people long enough for the wheelchair to get onto the ramp. And then I booked it over to the sort of the able-bodied water shuttle and, you know, got out of there uh you know tried to send some messages uh obviously I, I didn't have wi-fi at that time so who knows who got what messages in what state from me um and then you know got back to the ship and things were relatively fine when i got on board the ship about an hour and a half after i got on the ship there was an announcement from the captain that said uh as you probably felt and are aware there was an earthquake in jamaica about an hour ago not a lot of information is known, but we are continuing our water, sh water shuttle operations as normal if you wish to leave the ship uh, and also for returning. Uh, and that was the extent of the message. And so that was interesting. I, I mean, I was glad that they made some announcement and they acknowledged that it happened. And they told us that it was centered in Jamaica because at that point we had no way of knowing. Uh, the only news channel on the Carnival ships now is uh, CBSN. And it was caught up completely with impeachment news. The earthquake might not have been uh, substantial enough to warrant their coverage. I don't know. Um, so we had no information. So, okay, the, the captain acknowledged that they knew about it uh, and where it was located. That's fine. The fact that he said, like, not much is known at this time, that was not evocative of confidence. <laughs> That's my polite way of saying that, like, you know, uh, well, how do you not know more? <laughs> um but, you know, that's fine. Uh, I'm, you know, happy to be patient. I'm on, this, I'm on the ship. If water shuttle operations are continuing normally, then we're in relative safety for at least the time being. I don't know about, like, the risk of a tsunami or how long it would take to travel the 200 miles to get to us. Were that a concern? But uh, I have faith in Carnival and the captain of this vessel and its crew. So um, then later, 
much later in the evening, uh, after, after we had departed, they announced that they had contacted their operations center in Miami and that apparently operations in Jamaica were business as usual, which was weird because Sam said that as he was coming back, he was underwater when it happened, um, but they cut his dive short as a result of the earthquake. And he said that when he was coming back to the water shuttle, uh, he saw that there were businesses closing down and boarding up their windows in response to what had happened. Uh, so it's interesting that there seemed to be a more severe reaction in the Grand Cayman Island than was reported to be occurring in Jamaica, where it was centered. So that's kind of interesting. Um, so I think that's about all I have to say about that, really. Uh, it was a little traumatic. Um, but, uh, you know, to pat myself on the back, I suppose, I'm somewhat proud that I kept my, my wits about me, uh, that I was not um, panicking in a way that would have endangered other people. So... Um, I can't encourage you enough to conduct an earthquake drill. Um, you know, whoever is in sort of your nuclear family, if you've got children, your spouse, you know, whoever you're living with, um, it's not a bad idea to have uh, that practice, that muscle memory of look for hazards, protect yourself, you know, get under something, um, wait for the shaking to stop, and only then assess whether or not it's safe to move location. Um, I think that that will really help because when the adrenaline is pumping and it's happening and you have no warning, um, you need something to fall back on or you're going to be that person running back and forth, crying and screaming and just wasting all this energy to no productive purpose. Um, so yeah, <laughs> that's a sober way to begin this podcast, I realize, but um, it's what we experienced. And so I wanted to talk about it a little bit. And if it's in any way informative to people, um, then it's uh, then I'm, I'm proud to have, you know, uh, covered it and hopefully provided some value there. So um, just a little technical note here about the podcast. I am recording here in my stateroom on the Carnival Vista. I'm using a new microphone that I received called a Fine Fine, uh, which I did a test on the Small YouTubers Boost YouTube channel. That's sort of my secondary endeavor supporting other creators, uh, whether you run a podcast or YouTube channel or an Instagram or whatever, um, but it's primarily focused on YouTube. And so I'm testing this out for the first time on the ship. So hopefully the sound quality of this podcast is good. Uh, we would love to have your feedback back whether you think this sounds better or worse than our previous podcasts you can always email us team at vacationimpossible.ca you can hit us up on twitter at vacayimpossible uh, and there's also you know myriad other ways you can contact us on social media but those are a couple good ones uh, and so uh, of course there is likely to be ambient noise of air conditioning and things happening in the hallway so i do apologize for that um, so that's sort of the trip so far. We're headed back, uh, looking forward to be, you know, on stable land again, I guess. Um, and don't get me wrong, you know, as exciting and terrifying as the earthquake was, um, we're having a great trip. It didn't ruin the trip. It cut short Grand Cayman, but other than that, it's been a, it's, it's been a fine trip. This is a nice ship. I think, um, comparing the Carnival Vista to the Carnival Panorama, which we were on last month for her first ever week-long sailing, um... I think I prefer the panorama for two main reasons. One, I love the prox cards. Uh, it might sound unimportant or just goes like maybe I'm like, I like, I like tech. Um, but the prox card, when you're carrying a bunch of food or something else back to your cabin, just being able to tap that instead of having to insert a card at just the right speed, much easier. So I do appreciate that. And the other thing that I really like uh, about the panorama that I think gives the panorama the advantage over the Vista is the Hawaiian pizza. Not going to lie. Um, the Hawaiian pizza is pretty fantastic. So um, uh, I have acid reflux 
And so having lots of pepperoni pizza causes the acid reflux to get kind of bad. And I often have to have, you know, chocolate milk or ice cream or a Tums or something to combat that. With Hawaiian, it's not so bad because you have the ham instead of the pepperoni. It's not as spicy. And I find that the, uh, if it, for some reason, the pineapple seems to counteract some of the, the negative acid. I don't know if it's neutralizing it or what. Um, so for those two reasons, and maybe they're, they, they're small reasons, but for me, uh, those are the two reasons why I would prefer the panorama over the Vista. Otherwise, they're very much the same ship. The Vista's a little older, so like some of the some of the doors don't close quite as perfectly as they do on the panorama. It's not as shiny as new, but uh, it's still a really good ship. Um, my favorite ship is still probably the Breeze, though, because I really do like the Deck 5 uh, on, on the Dream class with all the hot tubs uh, and the extra space that that provides. They have similar stuff here, not so much the hot tubs, but they do have a lot on Deck 5. Um, and this is also our first time doing a Havana experience um, room at all and this is a balcony and so they do have a couple hot tubs and a pool and the Havana area which is really quite nice I do enjoy that a lot so um, you know if I had Havana versus like a regular balcony on the dream okay maybe I'd probably go panorama then panorama would be my favorite ship if I could have a Havana balcony <laughs> but for every every sort of other classification of uh, stateroom I think I prefer the dream class so there's that um, just thinking about upcoming trips we have planned, just to keep you in the know as to what things we might be covering in the near future. We're headed over to Victoria next month for JohnCon, uh, Victoria's only invite-only birthday gaming party, as John likes to call it. It's just his birthday. We go over for board games, but um, it is a little trip. You know, we take the ferry over. We're going to be staying at a Red Lion Inn, uh, so maybe we'll do a hotel review. Maybe we'll do a podcast while we're there. Uh, we might cover things about Victoria. Uh, in the past, for example, for JohnCon, we've reviewed Spoons, the nice uh, breakfast and lunch diner that they've got over there, so who knows? But feel free to submit any questions or things you'd like to see to us uh, for that. Uh, no word on the potential Mario Marathon for this year, as of yet. So um, there wasn't one last year. Uh, so I'm not holding my breath. I still have some vacation time in reserve in case something does happen. And I certainly hope it does because it raises money for Child's Play Charity, which is a wonderful cause that I care a lot about. Uh, so I hope that there will be a Mario Marathon, but I have no information. Uh, all I have is hope. <laughs> and so we'll see what happens. But if that does happen, then yes, we would make every effort to go back to Indianapolis for that. And speaking of Indianapolis, uh, I may or may not be returning to John Con this year. Not John Con. I may or may not be returning to Gen Con this year. Gen Con is North America's largest board gaming convention. And John and I went last year in an epic 17-day road trip. And uh, that was amazing. John's not able to go this year, so I may go. But if I go, it obviously wouldn't be a road trip. I would fly in, uh, and it would probably be like a five-day trip. Fly in, three days of the convention, fly back, something like that. So I'm in touch with the Mario Marathon guys in Indianapolis and sort of trying to determine whether or not I'm going to be heading to that event or not. Uh, it's based on a couple of different factors. So uh, again, um, let us know. Is Indianapolis and Gen Con something you'd like to see more of? Uh, we're always happy to accommodate if we can. Uh, we've got a couple um, other things on the horizon. Portland Retro Gaming Expo, which we normally go to every October, is happening in August this year. So it is absolutely my intention to go. Uh, I haven't checked what guests have been announced. Last I checked a couple weeks ago, no one had been formally announced. So uh, normally I wait till Pat Country or uh, James Rolfe is announced, and then I buy my tickets. So um, yeah, I, I intend to go to that. If it's just me, I might have to train down. Uh, otherwise, we'll probably do a road trip with you know Mike or Sam or Mindy or whoever's uh, interested and well enough able to come along. So that's something for August. Uh, a little later in August after Gen Con. They're both in August, though. 
Uh, and then we've got two cruises that we're thinking about booking. Well, actually, possibly upwards of four. <laughs> um, after returning from this cruise, after a Carnival cruise, you normally get an email that gives you a promotion if you book another cruise within the next two weeks. Normally, it's not very advantageous, like $50 of onboard credit per stateroom, something like that. But I figure, okay, I'll take advantage of that because uh, Mike wants to sail out of New York City and do a partial Panama Canal transit. And uh, I think it also includes a stop at Limon uh, in Costa Rica. And so those are three things I've never done before. I would be very excited to do that. And so we're just waiting on Mike's time off to be approved. So assuming that it is approved, uh, that's the thing that we're hopefully going to be doing. And uh, the thing about that that's particularly interesting for me about sailing out of New York City is the Carnival Cruise Port, as I understand it, is right next to the USS Intrepid, which is an aircraft carrier that's turned into a museum. The Intrepid has a space shuttle on top of it, the USS Enterprise. Uh, and then I believe there's also a submarine uh, that you can tour as well. So I would love to do all that. I'd love to try some authentic New York pizza. Uh, it's interesting. Um, on the CU podcast that I'm a fan of and I like listening to, they've discussed recently about how apparently New York pizza is different in New York specifically because they use different water. So even though you might have New York style pizza in a different region, it apparently is missing something. I don't know if that's true or not. So I would like to go find out. Um, and then, of course... The cruise would, as I understand it, sail right by the Statue of Liberty, so I'd want to get a balcony on the side of the ship uh, that would get to see that, and that would be amazing. So that's something. We're also looking at possibly returning to Hawaii. Uh, there is an 11-day sail out of Vancouver on a Carnival cruise ship, the Spirit, I believe, um, that would go to Hawaii. Uh, it's 11 days, so that would be one day longer than previous. Uh, and so that's very exciting. The New York cruise would be 12 days as well. And so the longest I've ever done before is 10 days, the previous Hawaii trip that we have videos on our YouTube channel about. Um, so I'm very excited about the prospect of that as well. Um, that would be great. Didn't do a whole lot while in Hawaii. Uh, and of course, I'm a sea day guy, so I love the five sea days to get there. But it'd be nice to try some, you know, try more of Hawaii. I didn't get to Pearl Harbor. I'd very much love to go to Pearl Harbor. So um, that's a very exciting possibility. And just by virtue of us being on the West Coast, the possibility of another Ensenada quick four-day cruise is always on the horizon on either the inspiration or the imagination. And now that we've got the panorama on the West Coast, I wouldn't mind going back to the panorama and having more of that Hawaiian pizza. So that would be pretty nice. Uh, as well, using the tactics that I've learned from Ace of Vegas on YouTube, I have now reached over a thousand, no, over a million loyalty points in the My Vegas app and game and things of that nature and that is enough for a seven-day cruise for free so that's something else that i'm interested in trying i don't know if i'll be able to squeeze all that in this year i don't think i would have enough vacation time to make that work um but hey it's vacation impossible we try to do the impossible and show you how so maybe i can pull that off i don't know that's just our current plans so one question that we often get is how debarkation works so here we go how does debarkation work? Well, first off, what is debarkation? Debarkation is the act of leaving the ship at the end of your cruise. So you're returning home. Uh, and so there are some important things to know about that. Uh, there are two main options when you want to leave a Carnival cruise ship. There is um, self-assist or you can go uh, by zones. So self-assist means that you will carry all of your luggage off the ship. That's what self-assist means. You are assisting yourself off the ship. Uh, and so when you do that, uh, when they are announcing when 
people get to leave the ship, you want to listen for your deck. So if you're on deck seven, you have to wait until they say, okay, self-assist self deck seven can now leave the ship. And then you grab your luggage and go. Now, normally you have to be outside of, you have to leave your stateroom cabin by 8.30 in the morning, regardless of what method you take, regardless of your loyalty level. So you have to be ready to be out of your cabin, normally by 8.30. It can vary by port and by ship. So check the documentation that they will leave in your stateroom a night or two before the end of your cruise, and it will tell you exactly what time you have to leave your cabin by. When you leave your cabin, you can go to one of the main dining rooms to have some food. You can go up to Lido, and there are other areas where you can wait. I recommend going to the restaurant. It's much more civilized. Getting a seat on Lido on debarkation day it's very hard. It is competitive. It is busy. There's luggage and people and they're all tired and it's not a great environment. My recommendation, if you have the time, go to the restaurant. It's much more civilized. It's much easier. So self-assist is when you carry all your luggage with you and you wait to hear your deck. The other option is by zones. What this means is you are going to have the staff take your luggage, not necessarily all of your luggage, but even just one piece. Uh, and they will take it off the ship for you. And so you will receive a luggage tag. You need to fill out the back of the luggage tag with some basic information like your departure date, your flight number, if you have one, an airline, your name, address, cell phone number, stateroom number, those sorts of things. That's just in case for some reason your luggage gets um, you know, separated or misplaced. There is a little tab that you can take off and the tag will have a number and this is your zone number. So if you have Faster to the fun, platinum or diamond loyalty status, you will get a low number. I'm platinum. On this sailing, we got the number two. So if we wanted to do this, this means that our luggage would be some of the first to be taken off the ship. So when we want to leave the ship, we're waiting in the restaurant or on Lido or a lounge somewhere, wherever you're allowed to wait. And then we hear zone two, that is your luggage tag. And so then you could get off the ship when your zone is called. Uh, and that is sort of the basics of it. So when you self-assist, you're carrying all your luggage. So you go through, you have to have your sail and sign card in your hand. They need to scan you off the ship so that they know you've left the ship. Uh, that way they can account for everyone. Once you've been scanned and off the ship, you know, you don't need that anymore, but now you need your photo identification, preferably a passport. Uh, and so then you have to go through customs and border security and they might have some questions for you. Uh, and then once you're through that, you can go. And that is self-assist if you're bringing your luggage. If you are using zone debarkation where you have the staff take some, at least one piece of your luggage off the ship for you, uh, you have to leave your luggage outside the cabin normally before 11 p.m. the night before. But again, that can vary between ship and port. So check the information they provide you. And... Um, when they call your zone, you leave the ship. Again, they scan your sail and sign card. Then you need to grab your luggage before going to customs. And so it will be organized by the zone number. So they will have signs or placards um, in that area, that receiving area. And the luggage will sort of be clustered around the zone that you're in. So you go, you grab your luggage. Then you get back into the line to go through border and customs. And then you're on your way. So uh, that is the basics of how debarkation works, how you get off the ship at the end of your cruise. There are some problems when booking with Expedia, in my opinion. Uh, I recently had an experience with Expedia where I was trying to book something and I got an error on their site. Well, actually, I didn't get an error. What happened was um, 
there uh, there was a screen that came up and it says don't close or click back or refresh the window because I'd already put in my credit card number, I'd agreed to the terms, the conditions, the amount, everything, and I was waiting for it to process. Uh, and it says don't close this window, don't go back, don't hit refresh. And it doesn't provide a number to call or anything. And so it was on the screen for a very long time. And after a while, it kind of got to the point where it was ridiculous. And so I reached out to them on Twitter. Uh, and so I was having a back and forth. And it took hours to get resolved. They kept asking me for more and more information. I sent them a screenshot of what was going on, my account information. But then they wanted my phone number, even though they already had my email and all the other details. Uh, you know, com like not confirmation number, but there was like a booking number or something. Um, and so they kept going round and round, asking for more and more and more and more information increasingly until eventually they said, yeah, you just have to book it again. Because I didn't want to book twice and then uh, be on the hook for both charges because Expedia's cancellation policy isn't always great. Their refund policy, I've had issues in the past where, you know, I eventually got it to work, but it was, it was so much hassle. And so I was trying to do the responsible thing that their instructions had outlined. And in the intervening time, while well, they took forever, and the funny thing is, is they responded to my messages relatively promptly. It's just this continuing cycle of more information, more information. Uh, and so the price of the flight that I was trying to book went up by several hundred dollars in the meantime. And they absolutely refused to honor the price that I had entered my credit card number regarding. Uh, and that's frustrating. And when you're on Expedia, the price often fluctuates from screen to screen. I don't know of any other service, a hotel, a cruise line, an airline, when you're on the actual, you know, um, uh, provider site where the price will change rapidly and that frequently. It's very frustrating. And it's further frustrating because, and it's been documented by other people that, um, you know, the day you book, the time of day you book, the browser you're using, the device you're using, whether it's mobile, PC, Mac, can often influence the price you see on Expedia because they understand that certain people um, are more price conscious than others. And so they're making an assumption. They think that people logging in through like an iPhone, uh, because iPhones are rather expensive, uh, are less uh, concerned about price. Um, but if somebody is, you know, going through, uh, you know, an older browser or something, they might be more concerned with price. And so you might get more messages saying, oh, six people are booking this or only one left. Uh, and it's not uncommon for those numbers not to be fully uh, accurate. So um, like I've booked a flight through Expedia where it says only one seat left. I booked it. Uh, and then like three other people who are traveling with me went and booked the same thing, even though there was only one seat left. So uh, I question the accuracy. Uh, from my personal experience anyways. Um, I make no claims of expertise. I'm just talking about my personal experience. Uh, so that is uh, not great. And so the service that I got uh, in response when I pointed out what had happened completely because of their delay, uh, it was just a straight shutdown. It was just no. Um, and and they, were, they were very firm in it. And they said, you know, you know we're, we're just a middleman. They basically said in like the second or third message uh, of going back and forth saying like, look, you caused me to not get this price that, you know, you offered and I accepted, uh, you know, uh, they weren't going to honor it. And they said that there was absolutely nothing they could do. Um, and so there are some issues with Expedia. The service wasn't fantastic. The delay that, you know, their platform uh, then goes and connects to airlines. So why not just go book directly with the airline? There's a lot of really good reasons too. Uh, and sometimes Expedia has a higher price. 
Because, I mean, if you think about it, Expedia has their person managing their social media center. They built the website. They maintain the website. They have lots of ads. Who do you think is paying for those ads? You know, the you might remember that fast-talking Vegas ad for Expedia from years ago or whatever. I don't know if they still run it. I don't have TV anymore. Um, you know, who do you think paid for that? The customers, ultimately, because that's where all the revenue comes from. And so if, you know, their CEO and their call center staff and everybody gets paid, well, you know, that is an extra layer of, you know, bureaucracy or whatever you want to call it, expense that's layered on top of, you know, the airline. And like they said, they're just a middleman. If they're just a middleman and they offer you no great service, then what's the point of using them? They might on rare occasion have a lower price. And if so, that's fine, go for it. Um, but I find that it's often higher, uh, particularly with regards to hotels and other things. So um, do absolutely check. Don't assume that you're getting the same price from them. And be aware that you're less likely to get an upgrade going through them. There have been numerous times where I've checked in at a hotel or a flight and they said, oh, you booked through Expedia. Okay. I'm like, well, oh, what, what's up? And they're like, oh, that just means we can't upgrade you. And I don't blame them because the way that Expedia operates is um, they will, if they're able to match the same price as the airline, how do you think they're doing that? The way that they do that is they force the airline or the hotel or the cruise line or whoever to give them the discount and they pocket that discount. Sometimes they might pass some of it on to you. And why would an airline do that? Because Expedia has all this advertising and it is the sort of aggregator that it's like, well, if you're not listed on Expedia, you're going to lose out on all this potential business and all this functionally free advertising from people that are just searching Vegas or flights or cruises or whatever. So they're kind of strong arming the company into giving them a discount under the threat that they would miss out on this potential audience. Uh, and so the company that ultimately provides you the service, the airline, the hotel, the cruise line, um, they're making less money. Their profit margin is reduced because Expedia is taking their cut. And so it's less advantageous for them to incentivize people to book that way. And so I've been checking into a hotel or a flight where the person next to me booked on Expedia or Hotels.com or Trivago. Those are all owned by the same company, by the way, Hotwire included. Um, so don't think that they're like, you know, uh, that, that, that Trivago is fighting Expedia. They're not. They're the same company. Uh, and so I've been standing next to someone who's booked that way and I've been offered an upgrade and they haven't on flights and hotels. Uh, so what you're going to want to do whenever the price is the same uh, or better than Expedia is book directly and sign up for the free loyalty program because then they're like, oh, hey, we know you. You book directly with us. You have a relationship with us. We might be able to build loyalty with you. So we're in we have, a, you know, an economic incentive to provide even better service for you because you might become a very loyal customer. Whereas with Expedia, that's transactional. The view, I think, I think fairly by hotels and airlines is sometimes that, you know what, you just got the cheapest thing and it happened to be us, fantastic, whatever. Like we discounted our service and so you came with us. But if tomorrow somebody else, you know, maybe flew with Air Canada, but if tomorrow WestJet discounts slightly more by a dollar more, you would fly with them. So... Do I, is it is it is worth it for me to incentivize uh, you with a free upgrade to maintain a relationship, to build a relationship? Uh, and so for that reason and some of the other reasons, like because the thing is, Expedia, what are they creating? What are what's the value add? Maybe they're aggregating so you don't have to search so many places. Um 
But that's about it. They don't seem to be offering much in the way of additional protection uh, or assistance or customer service. They're introducing delay and potentially inflated prices. So maybe it's discounted. And hey, if you want to be transactional about it, that's totally fine. Uh, just know that saving that extra couple of bucks might come at the missed opportunity for a free upgrade. And hey, that is a fine choice. I've made it myself plenty of times. But uh, it's just something to be aware of so you're making a conscious choice. Uh, but they have just inserted themselves into the process. Expedia doesn't make your bed for you. Expedia doesn't clean the hotel or your, you know, they don't operate, they don't operate an airline. They don't own a plane or a hotel of any kind. So they're not actually contributing anything. They, at their own admission, are just middlemen. Uh, and so it's like, you know, you got to think back to, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the motivation was at their creation, but it's like, oh, hey, there's a whole bunch of money being made over there. I want some of that too, but um, I'm not going to get into that whole hassle of actually owning property or providing service. <laughs> so, I mean, this is just one guy's opinion. Um, and, I, you know, I uh, could completely be wrong about some of the things that I'm talking about. Like I said, sometimes the prices are cheaper. Uh, sometimes they're more. Uh, and so it's just something to be aware of. So here's what I recommend. Maybe you've heard of the term showrooming. This came up in the retail space where people would go to like Best Buy uh, and they would go and they would look at all the TVs. They would pick out the one they would want and then they would go order it on Amazon. <laughs> and so that was contributing to the sort of the death of retail because people were using it for what's called showrooming. Well, here's what I suggest. Let's turn that around and let's showroom Expedia. Let's use Expedia or Flight Center or Hotwire or Priceline or whatever you want. Use that as your first search potentially Find the cheapest thing and then just go book it directly because that way you should be able to get the same or better price and most of those places have a guarantee where that's the case and then you're much more likely to get that potential free upgrade. And if you sign up for the loyalty program, then you might be accumulating points, dollars, whatever, um, for better service or free hotel stays, money off a future flight, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Expedia does have their own... Um, reward system where you can get some money off. And I've used that a little bit. I don't think it's as uh, compelling as some of the other things. I think like Hilton H honors points uh, have more value than that. So like, um, cause like in a year I'll get like 12 bucks off something through Expedia. Whereas within a year, you know, booking through uh, Hilton directly, I'll get a free hotel stay for a night at least, or like, you know, half off or something. So, and I find that can be really helpful because a, you know, a couple bucks off here and there This is better than nothing, certainly. But getting a free room or like 60% off a room with points at like Hilton, when you've got a hotel in a place that has a really difficult market where you're going to Chicago or something, uh, and, or, or you're going to Vegas at a time where it's very busy or somewhere else, and maybe you can use those points to get you out of that sort of a jam where you got to be there. That's I think that's a little bit better than saving a few bucks here and there, uh, having that in your back pocket. So it's just my personal opinion. Um, so I don't know that uh, Expedia is particularly worth it. I Even before I had this frustrating customer service experience, I rarely used Expedia. But now I really don't kind of want to reward people who basically they just say, hey, I'm a middleman and I can't help you. Even though our failure cost you hundreds of dollars. And so um, that just seems like a risk and an additional cost for virtually no benefit. So anyways, rant over about that. Uh want to make you aware of some changes to Uber that have happened in the state of California. So 
California has brought in a new law that is trying to protect people from being exploited by being called independent contractors, even though they behave as employees. And I don't want to get into the whole politics behind that. I just want to point out that this has either inadvertently or intentionally uh, forced some changes at Uber. And so in uh, pretty much any other state, when you are booking an Uber, you have a price that you agree upon beforehand, which I think is one of the better uh, things that you get with Uber than versus a taxi. Because a taxi, you don't know if they're going to take you on a merry chase the long way, if it's a town that you don't know. You don't know if it's a gypsy cab. The accountability is problematic. Do you know how to spot a fake medallion? I don't. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of different risks, you know, will there be traffic? Will they take a circuitous route? Uh, and all of that could add to your expense. And so when you get into a taxi or a cab, you're saying, all right, I'm going to pay whatever happens. I don't know. I don't control it. Uh, I, I, there should be something posted that explains how these rates are calculated, largely taking it on faith that the meter is doing it right. And it probably is. But the fact is you don't know in advance. And I don't like buying things when I don't know the price before I buy it. Who who does that? You might do it with produce. You know, you're not sure how heavy these oranges are. So, but yeah, you know, um, but with most other things, most other things that you buy, you want to know the price beforehand and you expect to know the price beforehand. I know the price of my cruise before I pay and commit. I know the price of my hotel. I know the price of my flights, um, but I don't know the price of my cab ride. If I get a shuttle, I know that. And so uh, that's one of the things I like about Uber and Lyft is that I know and I, I you know, I could see I'm like, OK, it's going to be exactly twenty six thirty seven. dollars uh, Maybe that's not great. I'm going to look into a shuttle. Maybe the search pricing. I'll do it later. Maybe I'll hang out for a little bit uh, or maybe, hey, you know what? Yes, that's I agree to that price. I know I'm going to pay that. I might end up paying more if I decide to tip, but that's under my controls, the consumer. So now because of this, there's no fixed price with Uber in California. So what they do is they provide a range, which is an estimate. Uh, and so I'm not casting any um, blame here. I'm not pointing any fingers, uh, but from a customer experience, that's not so fantastic. I can go online and there are taxi fare estimators for pretty much all over North America. And so I can, uh, I can get that. So I think that Uber's losing a competitive advantage there against uh, sort of the taxi monopoly that exists in some places. Um, most notably Vancouver, but that's actually seeming to be coming to an end. The monopoly seems to be broken up because Uber and Lyft is apparently now in Vancouver. It happened just after we left. <laughs> so we weren't there for that. But uh, I, I've, I haven't liked that monopoly for many reasons. Uh, for example, the dirtiest Uber or Lyft I've ever been in has been cleaner than the cleanest taxi I've ever been in. So from a customer experience standpoint so but they're losing the competitive advantage of knowing that uh price protection is also gone as a, as a consequence of that and apparently you can no longer cancel uh and so that it, it seems to be uh, so uh, you know uh, uh degrading the service and making the service seem more like taxis and the thing is uber and lyft um they have still some advantages over taxis uh, because honestly, I think the accountability is better. I've got the person's picture and license plate in the app. I can screenshot that if I want to. I've probably got a record of it. They're paid electronically. I pay electronically. It's not a cash transaction. There were recent stories about somebody had left their cell phone in a cab in Vancouver on New Year's and they demanded like a $100 ransom to return it to the person. 
Now, I'm not saying that you should have a free taxi ride for your phone. If you forgot it, there should be some responsibility. But they didn't offer the person to come pick it up at the depot at no charge. Uh, apparently, they had a policy of they'll bring it to you for like 20 or $25 or something, which that's somewhat reasonable, but that's not what they did. What they did is they, they ransomed it for $100. The person said no. They handed it over to another driver who further ransomed it and said, yeah, $100 again. Uh, and when it went to the media got this attention and they went to the cab company, the cab company said that didn't happen. Uh, and yeah, we have a policy of the $20 or whatever, and that's what was offered. Uh, apparently the guy had video. I haven't seen it. Um, but like those sorts of things you really hear about, um, in the cab and the taxi industry, that seems that there's no accountability or consequences for the driver. Uh, whereas with Uber and Lyft, I had a really bad experience in California on a Lyft. Uh, we tried to, uh, hail the Lyft. And he was texting us, and when he was trying to figure out where we were, it turns out he didn't know the area very well, but he was a local. Uh, he just kept texting us things like, there's lots of people. And so I specifically replied, like, this is not helpful. I am at the corner of this and this in front of this building at this address. Can you meet us? Oh, there's lots of people. There's tons of people. So many people. Too many people. I'm like, the, I, are you, are you, I don't understand. Uh, he eventually called me, started yelling at me. Um... And then when he arrived, he started yelling at me. Uh, and then he slowly, you know, took his turn yelling at everyone in my party. Uh, and then he was a dangerous driver uh, going to the airport. At one point, he blocked three lanes um, at the airport. Uh, he turned into oncoming traffic. He did many dangerous things. Um, but I knew his name. I had his picture. I knew his license. Uh, or not his uh, Yeah, I knew, I knew the license number, the plate number of the car. I should say. Uh, and I had the ability to follow up with Lyft. And Lyft actually responded really fairly well to that. So I gave him a one-star rating and no tip because he was verbally abusive. And we had a flight to make. Uh, and so I was just like, let's just get this over with. Uh, and so Lyft reached out to me and I explained what had happened. Lyft apologized. Uh, they made it so that that driver could never be matched with me again in the future. And they, they refunded the fare and they said that they are actually, um, they're going to be putting him on some sort of probationary period where they're going to be evaluating his, uh, driving performance and customer service. And they've spoken with him and followed up with him about that. I can't think of a story where I've heard a taxi company, uh, or a cab company take that kind of responsibility with one of their drivers. I mean, they certainly, because of the sort of lack of infrastructure, they can never say, we'll never send you that driver again. And that's a very easy thing to do in Uber and Lyft. And as I understand it, uh, one of the things that Uber has done as part of these changes is they said, you know, anyone you give a one-star rating to, you automatically will not be matched with ever again. It makes perfect sense to me. That should be an automatic function. So good on them for that. Uh, and so I still feel like Uber and Lyft is a better option for a variety of reasons, for that accountability, the improved service, all those sorts of things. Even though I did have that one bad Lyft ride, uh, I felt like it was, they did everything they could to try and, and correct it. Whereas a, a cab company, I don't feel like I have a recourse of any kind, at least not back in Vancouver before Uber and Lyft came along. Uh, but I do feel like these changes in California make Uber more like a taxi or a cab with, you know, the, that uncertainty of the price in particular. Uh, and so that makes shuttles seem more appealing, but Super Shuttle recently shut down in California and everywhere. But that was what I used to use in California. So uh, this makes me less keen to go to California, honestly, because it makes getting around town harder. Uh, so... Um, 
I, I don't. I doubt that that is uh, something that they were going for, but it is, I think, an unintended consequence of that legislation. So I just wanted to make people aware. So when they go to California, they're not surprised when it behaves differently than all the other states. One question that we've gotten several times is how does the dining work on a cruise ship, in particular in the restaurant? This is the main dining room that we're talking about, MDR for short. So like, what are the different dining time options is the question. So um, you have uh, three options to choose from when checking in for your cruise, what kind of dining you want in the main dining room. One of the options is your time dining. Now this is the one that I've spent the most time doing myself. I'm honestly not sure if it's the best way to go. So I will explain what it is and the benefits and drawbacks of all three options. So first up, you've got your time dining. This is analogous to going to a regular restaurant. You check in. Currently, you can do that through the app now, which is nice. Or you could go either to the restaurant or sometimes it's a thing on another deck where you go and you check in. So it's like going to the Cheesecake Factory. Uh, you know, the Cheesecake Factory used to give you uh, a beeper. Uh, the cruise ship might give you a beeper or uh, you might get notified through the Carnival Hub app, depending on how you've checked in. Once that's ready, a table is assigned to your party and you have 10 minutes to get there before they give it away. You go and you check in and you're seated. And so this gives you a wider variety of times that you can choose. Basically the window that is available to you. Uh, you can go in and check in at any time. So maybe you're feeling uh, you know, hungry earlier one day. Maybe you're in port really late another day and so you don't get to the restaurant until later another day. You have that flexibility and that flexibility is nice. It also means that each time you're likely to be at a different table. Although funnily enough, uh, Sam and I have both been seated at table 520 uh, twice this cruise uh, with your time dining. That's never happened to me before where I was in the same table twice. Uh, I guess it had to happen eventually. Um, but generally speaking, you'll have a different table every time. You'll have a different wait staff and bartender and everybody each time. Uh, so this can be good and bad. Uh, so that if maybe you have a not great waiter, I've had a couple experiences where the waiter wasn't fantastic, the next night you're not likely to get the same waiter again. Similarly, if you choose to dine with strangers, uh, your time dining, uh, you'll probably get a different mix of people each time and you can meet more people that way if that's something you're interested in doing. So that is pretty good. Um, so the other options is early or late dining. So this is a specific time. Like late dining, I believe, is like 8.15 p.m. And early is like, I think, 5.15, 5.30, something like that. And it can vary from ship to ship. So uh, when you do that, the first time you show up, you show your sale and sign card, and it'll actually have a table number. And so on that first day, they will go and they will show you the table. But that's the last time they'll show you the table. They expect you to remember that table location in the future. So that's something to keep in mind. This has some benefits and drawbacks. Some benefits, it means that you're having dinner at the same place in the same time every day that you choose to go to the MDR, which means that you have the same wait staff. So for example, if you have bottomless bubbles, the unlimited soda package, and maybe every time you sit down, you say, hey, I'd like a Pepsi. Well, maybe after that second time, maybe you sit down and there's a Pepsi already waiting for you. That's happened to me when I had late dining and I loved it. So that was nice. If you get a waiter that you kind of click with, uh, then that's great. You build a rapport, a relationship over time. They remember your name. Uh, you know, at your time dining, every time they're like, oh, what, can I get your name? Can I get your name? Not so much with the set dining time of either early or late. Early or late is the same experience at just a different time of day. So I'll treat them sort of the same. 
in terms of explaining the benefits and drawbacks. But a drawback is if you have a waiter that you don't connect with, maybe they don't provide the greatest service, maybe their sense of humor is a little off, something could be, you know, a little strange. That can happen from time to time. It's pretty rare. I can think of like two or three times I've had bad experiences with waiters in 23 cruises. Uh, and because I do a lot of your time dining, it's a lot of different waiters <laughs> over the years. Uh, normally they're all fantastic, but if you get a bad one, you know, you might need to speak to the maitre d' or something if you don't want to have that experience continue, or you might want to eat somewhere else. You know, it's kind of up to you how you want to manage that. Um, so there is that risk that if you're in a section, um, that maybe you're surrounded by screaming children and parents aren't doing anything about it. And, you know, it's really obnoxious or something. Uh, or if you're, maybe you're right next to the, the kitchen and you, you don't like that. Uh, maybe you got a window, uh, and that's what you want. That could be great. But if you get, you know, if it makes you all squeezy, maybe you don't want the window. Um, so there's a certain permanency to it and permanency has good things and bad things about it. In my experience, the, the majority of them are positives, but it is a risk. And so do you want to roll the dice one time for your whole cruise on your placement and staff, or do you want to roll the dice every night and get a mix? It's completely up to you and whatever works for you. But that's sort of the core of what the difference is. So what is best? It's hard to know. It's up to you ultimately. I like aspects of both. Uh, I do when I have bottomless bubbles, I really do kind of like the, the set dining time because then they get to know me and you know, that, 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 that soda might be waiting for me when I get to the table or short after, shortly after I sit down without me having to say anything. Uh, they're not constantly checking my card for the sticker and stuff that can be quite nice. Uh, when I was on the paradise, uh, we were sailing back to Tampa in rough seas. And so a lot of the ship was not well in terms of the guests. So, and I had set dining time. Uh, and so I had like a quarter of the restaurant to myself that night. The waitress sat down and had dinner with me because she's like, do you want some company? I'm like, yeah, sure. Sit down. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, but uh, a thing to note that's important about early and late dining is that after that first time, after the first time they show you where your table is, what you need to do is then you go and you go to the table yourself at the assigned time, 8.15 or whatever it is. So that can be a little bit of a cluster outside the restaurant right before they open the doors. Because it's kind of like the shotgun blast approach. I think uh, like uh, uh, shotgun start is a term they use in golf, for example, when everybody's on a hole and then you just begin. Um, and so it's basically the, there can be a massive crowd and, you know, the doors open and then everyone's going to their seat. And so it can be, you know, that, that waiting in that area of all those people can be a little bit much. So maybe, you know, hang back five minutes or something. Like if your dining time is 8.15, maybe go at 8.20 or something, you know, uh, not too late. You don't want them to think that you're not showing up. Um, but maybe give a moment or two for that rush, uh, that mass of people to go through and find their seats. Uh, because it's kind of every man for himself, every woman in person for themselves. Uh, after that initial one where they, they, you know, guide you to the seat. But then every subsequent dinner, it's you go when the doors open. Uh, so that's just something to keep in mind, particularly about the experience. Maybe you want to create for yourself and the people you're traveling with. Uh, you know, if you want sort of an experience of elegance and, and service, uh, is waiting for a table or kind of being in that gaggle of people, what is, what's worth it to you. So ultimately, it's everyone's sort of individual choice for themselves. Uh, so, yeah, um, I think that's probably, that'll probably be it for, I think, this podcast. Uh, keep this one a little bit short, because it is just the Raycast. You just had to listen to me for the whole hour, so I appreciate you sticking with me for it. Um, do please check us out on our various social media uh, platforms, in particular YouTube. YouTube.com slash Vacation Impossible. Uh, for those of you watching on YouTube or see the clips, I'm actually wearing our t-shirt 
that has our you know uh, YouTube uh, address on it. It's uh, uh, so you can get this T-shirt. Um, it's uh, <laughs> it's on it's on Teespring. If you check our YouTube channel, we've got links to it there. Uh, I'll see about putting a link in the show notes to the T-shirt. Um, but it's available from Teespring. Uh, we call it the ship-faced uh, T-shirt because it's got uh, a ship coming out of my face, and it's I, I'm I will admit it's a little weird wearing a shirt with my face on it. <laughs> Uh, so anyways, we're, we're working on designing. Um, I, I think what we want to do is have a new shirt design every year. And so this is like the 2019 shirt design, which will still be available, but we're going to start work on a 2020 shirt design. So if you have any requests, colors, ideas, whatever, feel free to submit them. Uh, you can reach out to us through a variety of means. We're on Twitter at vacay impossible. You can send us an email team at vacation We're very happy to, um, you know, answer any questions that you might have. If you want to suggest a topic, you can also on Twitter, use the hashtag VI topics, um, or VI podcast. We check both of those. And so, yeah, this has been the Vacation Impossible podcast. And thank you so much for listening. If you're able to give this podcast a review on your podcast platform of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever it may be, we would appreciate that. Uh, We do see that we have quite a few followers on different platforms, and uh, that is amazing for us. I had a crazy experience just before recording this podcast. I was up on Lido Deck getting lunch here on the Carnival Vista. Somebody came up to me and he says, are you? you have a YouTube channel? And I said, yeah, Vacation Impossible. The guy goes, I knew it. And he turns to his uh, girlfriend or spouse or I don't know what um, and, and, and says, uh, and hands her his phone and says, can I get a picture with you? And I was like, yeah, you can. <laughs> That's amazing. That's never happened to me before. Uh, so that was, um, you know, I had a slow start to the day. I kind of stayed up late last night. I slept in this morning. I was kind of dragging my feet. Uh, and like that experience, just like I'm full of energy now. That was an amazing experience. So uh, that was really cool. <laughs> um, nothing like that's happened before. There was uh, Cindy from... Uh, another YouTube channel was on the panorama with us. Uh, I forget the full name. It's um, she calls it a web show. Um, and so her, we had conversed a little bit on Facebook beforehand. And so she ran up, she was like, Oh my gosh, vacation impossible. And that was pretty cool. Um, but this was the first time that like just a random viewer, uh, has, has recognized us. And, uh, that is an amazing feeling. I mean, Hey, if we get big, I might feel different, you know, in like five years if it happens all the time. But as of right now, if you see us, if you recognize us, say hi. (laughs) Because it, it, uh, yeah, it made my day. It literally made my day. I, I know that there's like some celebrities who say that. I think they're just being polite. Uh, no, seriously, this is absolutely amazing. I was feeling a little discouraged and stuff. Like the channel's going well, but I was just having a low energy kind of day. It happens to the best of us. Uh, and it completely turned my day around. And so now I'm like, I need to go film everything on this ship because people are watching and obviously are enjoying. And uh, I just can't, uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, what support you offer, uh, whether it's subscribing to this podcast, sharing it with a friend on YouTube. When you click like on that video, it helps other people find the video. It makes such a big difference to the discovery. And so especially those videos where we're showing you how to save time in line, how to be prepared, how to save money, these things that'll make a better vacation experience for all of us. If we can just follow some simple tips, know before you go, makes a huge difference. The whole why of why Vacation Impossible exists is to get people to travel more, to get outside their comfort zone, to try something new and God willing, save some money along the way. Our whole philosophy is, is if you save money going, you can go more often. And isn't that better? Isn't that great?
So thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to uh, having you back the next time on the Vacation Impossible podcast. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 